Tere! Seekord on LHV podcast tavapärasest erinev. Minu nimi on Priit Rumm, olen LHV kommunikatsioonijuht ja seekord pakkume teile ingliskeelset kuulamist. Salvestus on tehtud 23. mail vahetult enne Euroopa parlamendi valimisi paneeldiskussioonil, mis toimus Londonis vastuvõttul, kui võrustasime LHV fintech ettevõtetest kliente. Paneeldiskussiooni teemaks oli Where does Europe stand in the geopolitical landscape? Ehk arutleti, mis Euroopa poliitikas täna toimub ja kuidas see suhestub maailma teiste suurte tegijatega. Kutsusime arutlema väga huvitavad mõtlejad, kellest kohe kuulete veidi pikemalt ja diskussiooni vedas LHV Gruppi nõukogu liiges Sten Damgivi, kes tunneb väga hästi rahvusvahelist äri ja idufirmasid. Annanki siin kohal jutujärje üles Stennile ja salvestusele kevadisest Londonist. Thank you all for, for joining us. Um, just to worry briefly, I hope all of you have seen or, or you have a copy of, of this booklet where we have a longer overview of the esteemed background of our panelists. But, uh, but just to very quickly introduce who's who. Uh, Tim Marshall uh, is a renowned writer, speaker, thinker around political geography and how the world will look like in 50 years? Unfortunately, he couldn't be here tonight, but I am. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> then uh, Anthony Gardner, uh, m- most recently the US ambassador to European Union, so, so probably the, the biggest contribution to the conversations are about Europe and US and what this means. Obviously, you have much more international experience beyond that as well. And then we have uh, Ragnar Meitern uh, from ING, uh, a Estonian-born international banker. So, so uh, pleased to be here. So we'll uh, we'll uh, touch banking, obviously, in our conversations as well. And just to just to give you a little bit of, uh, of a structure on how we're going to discuss the topic on the screen, uh, we're going to break the discussion into two parts. So when we talk about uh, where does Europe stand in the geopolitical landscape, we, we figured in our pre-conversations that we can't really get into that topic, like zooming out and looking at the globe, without talking about Europe itself. Because it's so turbulent, this week is kind of messy, we don't know what will happen exactly on Sunday, and so forth. So, so in the first part, we'll, we'll discuss a little bit like what is Europe like inside. And in the second part, we're switching to Europe versus the world. Europe, US, Europe, China, Europe, wherever. And, and we hope to conclude, conclude this sort of conversation in an hour, where, whereby we have a section for questions. So uh, if you have one while we, uh, with the panelists are having a chat, please take a note and, and uh, remember it for when we get to the questions round in the end. So thank you. Um, so to start off, I think, uh, let's start, uh, Tim, with your view, like this European internal view. Like, how would you characterize what, what's happening in Europe right now? And are we, are we at the point where, where we are, have entered the distinct era, or are we coming out of an era? Or what's, where do we stand? Thank you, Stan. Terre uh, to our new uh, Estonian friends in London. <laughs> and good evening to everybody else. Um, We've finished an era, it's over, and people need to understand that. And that era is the post-war era. It's finished. Probably finished about 10 years ago. So the war war finished 70 years ago, and it took us 62 years out of that era. Yes, because the structures that came in after the Second World War have have done us proud. An analogy. 1815, 1816, Congress of Vienna after the Napoleonic Wars, the structures were put in place 
about how we were going to govern this space called Europe. And they lasted about 70 years. Right. Nothing lasts forever. We are 70 years from the Second World War. Why on earth would the structures that we grew up with still last? It is not unusual, it shouldn't be surprising that we're in this period of turmoil, but we are now in the post, after the post-war period, we're in a new period. The problem is, it's a period of turmoil until we come out of the other end into the new structures. And which is why our politics in all of our countries are roiling, as the Americans say. It is why you will see on Monday the rise of the far right has not peaked. And even Monday will not be the peak of the rise of the far right in all of our countries. And it's why, because politics is in such a state of flux, the economic decisions that also need to be made will be complicated in the new Europe and decision-making will be difficult. And I know you guys don't like uncertainty, but this at the moment is a short-ish period of uncertainty. Right. Tony, when you were the ambassador, that was sort of the end of the Obama era, and, and, and uh, looking at Europe now, like 2015 versus 2019, have things gone better or worse? Does Europe know where it's headed? So, yeah, indeed, I was serving as U.S. ambassador under Obama, to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> I left January 20, 2017 at noon Eastern Standard Time, which is when Donald Trump walked into the Oval Office, to be clear. So, <laughs> and I, I say this for a reason, right? Uh, 2015 looked pretty ugly. I was getting phone calls almost every week from the White House, from the State Department, 2015. A million migrants had flooded into to Germany. Grexit, there were a lot of other issues. Financial crisis hadn't been sorted out. It looked pretty grim. The question was to me, when is Europe gonna fall apart? And my answer was, Europe is not gonna fall apart. The Schengen free movement, area free movement is not gonna fall apart, even though a lot of borders were being erected at that time. And I could almost see the eyes rolling back, you know, saying, oh, our ambassador's gone native. He's drunk the Kool-Aid. But I was right. Europe actually handled its crises pretty well. It reestablished control over its external borders. Greece didn't leave. Greece is now actually growing. Now, people don't give enough credit for the EU about what it did. Financial crisis, late, but was handled. And I say this because today, 2019, four years later, I'm actually more concerned than I was back then. For a whole host of reasons you can imagine, a lot of the threats we're facing are old, but some are new, including the fact that you have a U.S. administration which actually, I believe, wants the EU to disintegrate. Sorry to say. I think it's that bad. This administration thinks Brexit's great, and not only that, there should be more Brexits. Hence, Viktor Orban of Hungary is treated like a hero in Washington. You have people you know, going around saying, Washington can get more done, not through the EU, but bilaterally, transactionally with its friends. And it doesn't see many friends in Europe, maybe the UK. So that's a new threat. The populist threat, which has just been mentioned, is not new, but it's worse in the sense that it's not just Hungary and Viktor Orban who was the bad boy for a long time. You have a lot of other bad boys. 
And why does that matter in this new European Commission and the, the elections and the parliament? You will have at least three, four, maybe more countries who fundamentally question what the EU is about and will make EU European-wide decision-making harder. So, and, and then Brexit, of course, has been a major issue that sapped the energies, not only in this country, but uh, in Europe. So I'm, I am, you know, I'm not gloomy-doomy, I'm an optimist, but I think we are going to see, as you just said, a period of continued Uh, particularly in China, uh, which look at the European Union now is a wonderful area of opportunity as, an, as a way of dividing and ruling European states because if you don't have an EU strategy, member states could go and kind of do their own thing on yeah. various issues. Yeah, let's get, let's get to the yeah. externalities a little bit later. By the way, did you see that these two gentlemen opened and the sun left? Like, like those bright sun coming from the window and like... I don't know. So, so, so Ragnar, Ragnar, from politics to business, like in banking, in M&A, in cross-border business, inside Europe, like is Europe still a great place to do business or, or uh, is it as gloomy? Uh, I, I mean, if you, if you look at what's happened in Europe from sort of the tech space in the last five years, it actually has been incredible growth and it actually has been quite positive developments Europe-wide. I mean, Europe now has uh, probably you know, 10 or so unicorns, uh, very successful startups, some of them coming from Estonia. But it's, been a, it's actually been much more positive if you sort of look from the, from the you know, a business perspective than I, I think politics, let's see, believe you think what's happening. So everybody thought that you know, after Brexit vote, you know, the economy will collapse in the UK. It has not, it sort of keeps going. Um, that the, the startups continue to get funded and, and so I think from that perspective there's been a lot of good things that has happened in Europe in the last five years. I think you know, before the session we sort of talked about PSD and PSD2 which has opened up uh, you know, a whole lot of services and uh, new fintech players to pursue. So there has been a host of a lot of very, very good developments let's say that has that has ha happened, and the question is whether this will now continue, or will everybody go back to, to doing things on, on, on their own, and, and, and so that's something I think up for debate. But, but okay, let's, let's dig into that one, so, and the sun is coming out, so uh, Tim and, uh, and Tony, you both refer to sort of the rise of populism and sort of isolation of countries inside Europe, uh, so, so Europe is not acti acting in a unified way. And, and, uh, and different countries are doing decisions based on their sort of nationalistic uh, goals. So when do you think that behavior and that trend will start hurting that sort of seemingly okay business growth? Well, yeah, a few things have gone right to pick up on what Ragnar you've been saying. So digital single market legislation has in large part uh, been a big uh, underappreciated success. Uh, a few other successes, like um, the infrastructure fund of the EU has you know, promoted European growth. But to answer your question, uh, if the EU is not capable of pushing ahead on further, uh, I would say, market liberalization, uh, digital market legislation, capital markets union, remember we talk, used to talk a lot about capital markets union? Because 
Europe is still a fragmented series of uh, separate capital markets mm -hmm. without the liquid and broad capital markets of the United States. The biggest center is about to leave, we think, potentially in a hard no-deal Brexit, right? So in that environment, I think, the answer to your question, I think um, businesses will feel an effect because you have two gorillas, China and the United States, who are muscling their way for global supremacy over the next uh, number of years and who are moving ahead very quickly in very different ways to achieve dominance in the key technologies of the future. China now has been much more open about its ambitions than ever before. It's in a document, 2025, right. and the U.S. similarly. So I, I think the answer is pretty soon. Right. Tim. Now, or perhaps Monday or July, yeah, we can if we need to pin down a date. That's when the new parliamentarians take their seats in July. Um, at which point, the old way of doing business in the European Parliament, which does matter, I know you know in Britain we kind of just ignore it, but it, it does regulate and makes laws about how you do business. Traditionally, the major block of the centre-right and the major block of the centre-left put aside their differences, come together, make decisions, and business is done. I think that model is in danger because the rise of the Greens on one side and some of the harder left parties, which will be more represented in Parliament, the rise of um, Salvini's bloc, led by the Italian uh, Deputy Prime Minister, which I think will almost double its representation in the European Parliament, they will not go along with the old ways of doing things and consequently that will act as a break on legislation going through which means that you, it's harder to know how you're going to do business. So soon. So if you have a, a sort of a medium-sized European state where there's a medium-sized retail owner or a factory owner or something like that who listens to this nationalist and says that, oh, okay, they're going to lower taxes and they're going to close the borders and I will have less competition and my business will be booming. Like, what's, how would you explain to that man or woman, like, why is that wrong? Oh, I wouldn't. You, but you're dealing with politicians uh, who deal in four-year cycles, not in 10-year business plans, and they will look, for example, the UK, our politicians will look at Bre uh, the Brexit party winning tomorrow's vote, and they will win this election. Uh, Mr. Farage will be the only politician in British history to win two elections with two different parties. He's got 100,000 members in six weeks. I'm saying all this to, to make the point that these are new times, and to make the point that do not be fooled that we are going back to the old days. We're not. We're not going back to the way we used to do things in Britain or in the European Union. So I won't, because the politicians uh, will look at all these results and will, act, will enact populist policies in order to assuage, and there is a democratic need for them to enact populist policies if that's what the democracy has thrown up. Same with Mr. Trump. Mr. Trump was elected to build a wall. So should you support building a wall if that's what people wanted? I mean, that's, I'm, that's, I'm, that's a digression, but if you believe in democracy, maybe he should. If you believe in democracy, maybe they should enact these populist policies too. So they will, in order to hang on to power. So it's, in a way, 
in a way, I think the paradox of our times is that the, the most globalist thing there is is the playbook how you build a nationalist society. So it's, it's the same model replicated, and it's, if it's successful here, like you will have more people copying the same model in other countries. So business, business people tend to be extremely rational and logical, and sometimes politicians are, but they tend to forget that the rest of us are much more emotional, and you need to understand emotion to understand politics, which then impacts uh, economics. Right. Tony, what's your view on the pace of change, and how quickly will will Europe internally now crumble or? Yeah. Well, so just to pick up on what we was just, was just said, I agree with entirely. You know, Steve Bannon used to work in the White House. He's now running around Europe trying to build a coalition of far-right parties. And he said something, I think, very profound, actually. He said, persuasion is overrated because mobilization is what it's all about. And mobilization means you don't actually have to use facts. You use people's emotions to get results. And that is a common theme, United States and in Europe today. Facts are losing out to emotions. The main theme that ties all of this together, I would argue, is the division between those who believe that drawbridges should be up, i.e. walls built, and those who believe that drawbridges should be down and we need to engage with the world. Simply, you know, oversimplify, but that's essentially what's happening. It's a battle that's being fought everywhere today. And unfortunately, those who believe the drawbridges should be up looks like they're winning right now because they have simplistic arguments. We solve everything, keep the migrants out, we build everything at home, we reshore manufacturing facilities in the United States, we don't import Chinese goods, blah, blah, blah. That's the simple argument. But to, your question was about speed. Speed, I hear, I, again, I worry. I just came back from China. Many of you I know visit China very often. The speed is amazing. The ambition and the dynamism is amazing. In the United States as well, there is a sense of, well, at least short-term tactical strategy. Well, tactics, maybe not long-term strategy, but tactics, very clear. The president thinks short-term advantage. U.S. has power and leverage. We should use it. We shouldn't be bound by rules. We shouldn't be bound by institutions. We should use U.S. power one-on-one. -on -one. And things are happening quickly. In Europe, speed has always been a problem. And in a world that's moving so fast with these two major players, can Europe actually react in a meaningfully, in a time meaningful way? Just think, one anecdote. The GDPR, General Data Protection Regulation, took seven years from beginning to end. And many regulations are taking that long. Europe cannot continue acting at the, those speeds. Unfortunately, it has a mechanism of decision-making which makes it very difficult to act fast. Right, right. Ragnar, this GDPR is specifically, and some other, you've brought them out as sort of great examples of European policy that make Europe more competitive inside. Yeah, exactly. I think I'm probably a bit more positive than these two gentlemen over here in terms of how quickly things may change or go back or not go back. I think obviously there are you know, far-right parties who have managed to change and, and, and uh, mobilize people. Um, I think the, maybe maybe the, the, the contingent of people that we are not counting in is the young people. And, and so far, I think the sort of the free movement of people in Europe has been great for these young people. And, and now, if all of a sudden that stops, I think 
people will have their thoughts about, well, we actually may want to have a sort of a, a free movement on people and then the things may actually be voted out, I don't know. But from that perspective, we're not counting on that young population of, of, of um, millennials who do everything on a mobile phone, who, who you know, you, you want, want to be one day in you know, Barcelona, the other day in London. So I think that's something that we, we need to take into account. Now, coming back to, to the question of, you know, Europe has certainly, or EU has done a lot of good things, which is sort of harmonizing the markets. And, and certainly there is a drive to harm, harmonize the legislation that will drive competition, especially in financial services industry. So, I mean, London is, we are in a, fintech capital of the world. So I don't think that will change immediately. I mean, venture, largest venture capitalists in the world are investing in London and how that will change post-Brexit. We ought to see that, but I, I don't think things will immediately sort of come to a an halt and, and, and business stops. So I think from that perspective, I, I think that it's not as, as doom and gloom as, as it may seem. It's, it's uh, you bring out, I think, I think the very, very valuable point there is about young people and the role in all that. So uh, to come back to that, but, but also the movement of people. Like one thing I noticed uh, in my own company when the first impact of Brexit vote wasn't like people shutting down companies and walking away, our hiring pipeline in London drew down and it dried up and we started looking into what happened and basically the reason was that, uh, that a Romanian software developer who came to work in London uh, because they were sending money home to their family, the day pound dropped 30%, that model failed and they stopped applying. So there's something that is like the butterfly's wing that can trigger some personal motivations that all of a sudden immediately change the landscape of how you get that talent in the city, for example. I think we're talking about two different things here. Um, this generation that lands in London one day and Barcelona the next day is tiny. It's a tiny amount of people. They don't represent everybody else. Most people do not do that. Uh, most people never leave their own country. So hang on, the, the, it's a very difficult one to explain this, but, but uh, there are the entrepreneurs. I don't think everything is going to collapse for a moment. I think there's fantastic business opportunities and deals to be done and money to be lent and firms to grow, either Brexit or without Brexit. Either way, I'm not a pessimist in that, but I'm talking about the politics of things. And if you want to talk about the politics of things, uh, and, and this is not, I'm not disagreeing with you, that this generation exists, but they are very, very small. They're, consequently, their voting power is very, very small. And yes, they fly into this capital and that capital. And yes, we will carry on being entrepreneurial. Great. But I'm talking about politics. In the politics, you, each individual country will become increasingly nationalistic because most people are not flying into Barcelona and Paris. That will impact on the national politics, that will impact on the makeup of the European politics, and that will impact on how we all do business because there will be increasing nationalism. The Hanseatic League, I mean, Estonia has joined the Hanseatic League. Yep. This is going to be a block within the EU with its own separate policies. The Visegrad group, Czech Republic, Poland, Hungary, uh, and the other one, Slovenia, uh, Slovakia, sorry. 
that the Visegrad group will be acting as a block. Neither of these two blocks will be going for greater cooperation and integration and a streamlined European Union of ever closer union. They will be pulling it the other direction. And so consequently, the politics of all this will impact on the business. And I think you have to separate them out, that, that the, your climate will change. It's not doom and gloom, but don't be fooled that the European policies will continue to streamline, making it easy to do business, because it's going to be chaotic and divisive and pulling in different directions for years to come. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a fair point, that the, the political cycle and the business cycle are definitely at different speeds here. Uh, to put numbers on it, I think in EU, Per year, probably there's 1.52 million people changing residency from one state to another out of 350 million. So, like that, it, let's say it's a 1%, 2% of people are moving. At the same time, when, when among them are the top 10,000 entrepreneurs, a lot of jobs will move, a lot of capital will move, all that, but voting will follow later. So, so Ragnar, I wanted to uh, ask you about that point is that when you, if you believe that it's not the next generation, the sort of mobile first people become voters, that basically means that the quickest we can change anything is the next election cycle, right? That they need to run for it, office, they need to get their own... It, it could be. Uh, it, it took um, AOC to go to get into office eight months. I'm talking about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, right? She was a bartender in Brooklyn, and she went in eight months to Capitol Hill. So things can happen very fast in politics. So, you know, we don't have that kind of um, politicians yet in Europe, but they could emerge. So in places where we're having elections now, we're screwed for four years. If we get screwed right before elections, it can happen in eight months. <laughs> so what makes you think that these politicians will be uh, like AOC? If their lives are being impacted by, um, by policies that, that, uh, that they don't agree with. You're being logical. <laughs> Look at Marine Le Pen's new deputy, the, the poster boy of what used to be the National Front in France for this election. He's 23. This cuts both ways. And young people are not automatically left-wing, as just as many of them are right-wing. Absolutely. That, that, that is very fair. Like the, my favorite question with Estonian politicians these days is like, uh, do you know what is Discord? Do you guys know what is Discord? 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 Discord. A. B? No. So Discord is a Sorry. online community and chatting and video calling app that a certain generation of gamers know. The only politicians who know what Discord is and are building communities on there are hardcore right-wing populists. Because like, if you get to the next level, and all of a sudden you have a bunch of 20-year-olds who are ethno-futurists. So, so it's, it's a dangerous game, I, I do agree. But uh, now, zooming out our conversation from the sort of local changes, inside Europe changes, uh, uh, Tony, I, I want to sort of tag to something that I loved, the, 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 the way you visualize that. Yeah, Europe stuck between two gorillas. Um, tell us a little bit more about that thinking and, and US, China, Europe, is, is it really it? What happens with Africa, like rest of Asia? Well, so, you know, we're, we're really living at an interesting time. And I say that because 
now we have an administration in Washington that is a uh, revisionist power, at least on trade, and leaving behind 60 years of U.S. foreign policy. You know, open borders and free trade is good, generally. Now we're saying we want to revise the world order because this president thinks that we have been ripped off. We're being raped by China, we're being raped by Europe, we need to revise it, and we need to be winning again, right? China is, at least on paper, rhetorically, saying we want and we want to protect the status quo. We are a status quo power, at least on trade. The United States is a status quo power on geopolitics because the U.S. is still the leading power in the world and wants to preserve its influence. China is actually a revisionist power in geopolitics because it wants to expand its influence regionally and even globally. So it's an interesting change and it's a mirror image of one another. And um, Europe is caught in between, right? Um, we have a United States which is, as I mentioned, uh, fundamentally challenging a lot of assumptions. Uh, I mentioned it wants to approach the world bilaterally, transactionally, thinks the EU is a waste of time and a waste of space. This president's called the EU a consortium. It's a very interesting word. Donald Trump has called the European Union a consortium that was set up by Germany to beat the United States in trade. That's the way he views the world. And the view in Washington is we can deal with China alone. We don't need Europe to deal with China. In fact, it's better we don't use allies because it'll slow us down, right? And that's on the one hand. And on China, it views the United States as its main competitor for global dominance. I mentioned the 2025 uh, manifesto where it says, China, we want to have global dominance of the following technologies, right? Mm -hmm. Artificial intelligence, robotics, and nano, and so forth. And China looks at Europe and saying it's kind of a lesser, you know, it's not that, not that important. Perhaps a useful ally to preserve the status quo on trade, which China wants, but still it's a China-US dialogue above the heads of Europe. So, Tim, Tim, do you think Europe can play both? Like, can we be friends on both sides and kind uh, of wheel it through? In some ways. Three things. One, I can't hear Anthony say China without thinking of Trump saying China. <laughs> Sorry, but China. Sec secondly, he, Anthony said the, the, these are, we live in interesting times, which is a Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times, and we are. The third one is, is exactly what Anthony says about the gorillas, I, I, two giants, whatever. The most meaningful story this month so far is Huawei. And Mr. Trump, uh, well, the Americans, pressurizing Google to take Google off Huawei's platform. Now, why the hell would you buy a Huawei phone now. I mean, they must have just dropped. If you've got a Huawei, you're trying to sell it on eBay. Yeah, I'll give you a tenner for that. So why has he done that? Precisely because the very things that the 2025 manifesto that Xi came out with are exactly what America is doing. Now, if China wants to build tennis shoes, fine. But if China wants to compete with America at this level, that's a problem. In he comes. The intelligence agencies went into Google's headquarters two weeks ago and briefed them. This is why we think it's a threat. I actually agree uh, it is a threat. I mean, you know, can you imagine a Huawei Alexa? You might as well say, Huawei, what time does the Chinese intelligence think it is? I think it is a threat. Uh, and I'm not. 
So the reason it's so meaningful, this is why our defense secretary resigned, uh, sacked, was sacked two weeks ago. He leaked that our cabinet decision was to allow Huawei to build our 5G network, it is thought. Why, if it was him, did he leak it? He leaked it because there's this massive debate to be had about whose side are we on? Because that's what the story comes down to, whose side are we on? We don't have to be on either side, except occasionally we are going to be forced to choose. And this was one of those occasions. We're going to be forced to choose. Are we going to go with China or are we going to go with America? And this will happen over and over and over again. Now, in most of trading, if you want to talk about soybeans or uh, Range Rover, Jaguar, it's not a problem. But there are going to be example after example after example where individual companies, countries and companies, you'll be forced to choose between these two gorillas. And this is, this is like, like already implicitly it's a super sad situation. You're not setting any agenda at all. You're only picking which one you're aligned with. Well, that's what they're going to do. They are going to pick us off one by one. Look at Mecasaur. Mecasaur in, the, in Latin America is a website. It's supposed to be the Latin American EU. It's a website, mostly. And China has just picked them apart. We'll do a trade deal with you, not with Mecosur. We'll do a trade deal with you, not with Mecosur. And they're going to come after the EU. And in these nationalistic times, where the individual European nation states are going to be competing, there will be a great temptation to try to say, within the EU, we've got to go this way, we've got to go that way. And they, they will pick us off. Which is why the EU is stronger as a body. It has got that. It's another gorilla. But it's a gorilla that's... It's, it doesn't seem to be a silverback at the moment. Ragnar, you like that? You can use that if you want. Ragnar, bringing in what you said before about sort of this, for example, regulations in EU that protect data and privacy, like that would say that, okay, if you want to play the AI game Chinese way, that means that they will know everything. If you want to play the European way, your Alexa or whatever built here might not pass everything to the government. So, like, do you, do you think in that game between the gorillas, like, is, does Europe have any unique angle? I think, I think, I think it, Europe certainly does have a unique angle. I think, as, a, as I said it before, I think, you know, I think it's a, the expression is that Europe is a, you know, a cradle of humanity, and I think there are certain rules that need to be set in the future, um, which around, let's say, artificial intelligence, um, around, you know what data the government can access, what uh, information the companies can collect about you. Um, and, you know, clearly, U.S. is very business friendly. So, you know, Facebook collects all the data about you. They will own it. In China, the government owns the data. I think in Europe, at least so far, there is definite desire to ensure that you Individual, as an individual own that data. And, and so I think certainly in terms of setting the rules and samples of, 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 of protecting the, the, the individual person from the state and, and, and from the, the companies, I think you know, Europe's been doing so far a, a decent job or a, or a good job, and I think they will continue to do so in the future. So if we, if we can't play on the size level with China, we can change the game. Right? Tony, you had a comment on that. So this is, look, we can't be too gloomy-doomy, right? <laughs> um, the European Commissioner for Competition Policy, who's a Danish woman, Margrethe Vestager, said something that resonated with me. She said, let's not try to be Chinese. The Chinese are much better at being Chinese than we are, than we are right? Mm -hmm. We should play a different game. 
And Europe actually is winning in some important ways. So it's not all gloomy dooming. What do I mean by that? Europe is setting the standards and the rules in very important areas. In competition policy, in the digital single market, in copyright, in data privacy. Who would have thought that Tim Cook would have shown up in Brussels and said, I love GDPR. I want GDPR. In fact, the United States should adopt a federal privacy law that looks like GDPR. No one would have said that. Even Zuckerberg said, I love GDPR. It's marketing, partly, partly yeah. marketing, yeah. But actually, you know what? California has adopted a law which looks like GDPR, and we may have a federal privacy law which will adopt much of what Europe is legislating. And the same thing on core issues, for example, on online platform liability for content that they host. Where are the standards being set? In Europe and in many other ways. When the United States withdraws, as it is now, on trade, Europe actually is a winner. It signed free trade agreements with Singapore, with Japan, with Canada. It's trying to do it with Australia and New Zealand and with Mercosur. And guess who actually is disadvantaged? It's U.S. exporters because we don't have free trade agreements like the Trans-Pacific uh, Partnership Agreement that we withdrew from. So European exporters are being advantaged. Those are important ways. Europe is exporting its standards across the world and is moving ahead in trade liberalization. Those are two important areas. Right. Um, these changes, so, so I think these are excellent examples. Now, I have a hypothesis that in some ways the internal democracies are slower than these international deals. Like, am I right in that? Like, when two countries want to sit down and get something done, like when I look at the pace the Chinese negotiations have been going, what's visible in public, or US-China, for example, or like, like, is that the fastest moving bit of the international politics right now? Well, actually, I mean, EU-Japan deal happened very quickly. Yeah. Very quickly. Mm -hmm. And partly it's because Donald Trump took the United States out of the Pacific Agreement, and the yeah. Japanese suddenly said, oh my God, we got to get this deal done. A deal which would have taken many years was much quicker. The Canada-EU deal took actually seven years, so it's, I mean, this is very, very long. The deal I was involved in and we failed to get through, EU-US, well, it took four years and we didn't get it done. Forget about the what's called plurilateral, many countries, that's even more complicated on digital economy. That's been going on for you for years. So, yes, it tends to be slow. And by the way, anyone who thinks there's going to be a quick UK-US free trade agreement is dreaming. It's not going to be quick, it's not going to be easy, and it may actually never happen for reasons we Why is that? Into. Why is that? Like, it feels like culturally, historically, so like interlinked countries, like, why is that hard? Well, Boris Johnson likes to go around saying, six weeks. Huh? With me as Prime Minister, six <laughs> weeks, I'll get it done. Sorry. Look, there's so many reasons. Reason number one, though, is that a lot of the issues we faced when we were trying to get a US-EU deal done are still going to be present under US-UK. Food standards, which is a big issue in Germany, Luxembourg, Austria, and here. Public procurement, big, big issue. NHS, privatization NHS, big, big issue, very emotional issue. <coughs> And another big issue as well is the U.S. one-on-one. -on -one. Donald Trump is going to be rubbing his hands. Rubbing his hands. And you know why? Because the U.K. out of the E.U. has a lot less leverage at the negotiating table than as a member of the E.U. And Donald Trump is not going to be shy about saying, this is the deal I want. You better take it. To Mr. Corbyn. 
to Mr. Corbett, <laughs> particularly on things that all of you love, hormone-treated beef, genetically modified organisms, chlorine-washed chicken, I dealt with all of those issues, right? He's going to say those are the big things that stop the United States from selling its commodities to Europe. That's not going away. Last reason, which is a big reason, Northern Ireland border is a big, big topic. The, the Speaker of the House of Representatives was in London, Nancy Pelosi, and she said the following. <coughs> said, if there is a Brexit that results in a hard border in Ireland and interferes with the Good Friday Accords, forget about a free trade deal with the United States. Right. Tim. What he said. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> in everyday business of building and investing in companies, does it matter? Like, will these investments stop if we don't have that agreement that will not happen? So, I mean, I think, um, you know, taking a step back a little bit where we are right now, sitting in London again, I think obviously the uncertainty around Brexit um, here has caused the delay, certainly by, 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 by business to continue invest in UK. Um, I think things are still very much happening in Europe. Um, I think, um, and things are also happening in, in UK as well, to be fair, you know, just yesterday uh, there was a big announcement, TransferWise, you know, raised capital at that at, at three and a half billion valuation where from the investors from coming in from the US, uh, from California. So, you know, sentiment still is, is, is reasonably positive. Um, and, and I think these sort of, um, at least the, the sort of the tech and, 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 and an area of focus on, they seem to be less impacted by, let's say, you know, trade agreements in terms of goods and services or, or in terms of goods. Um, so I think business will always continue to, to, business will always continue there. People will find ways uh, to, to, to continue to, to, to grow and, and, and conduct trade. So I think obviously the space or pace of, pace of these agreements will, will obviously will have an impact, but I think, you know, it, I, I don't want to say it's, we're not all doom and gloom, I guess. Good. <laughs> to, on that note, um, I would like to ask all of you to, to think about something to tell to the audience, which in your mind is the reason to be cheerful about in all of this. In Europe, its role, its future internally, its role internationally, and the way these things are intertwined. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, how long have we got? Really? Look around us. You know, it's not all just going to collapse, Brexit or no Brexit. Um, the energy of Europe, the ideas of Europe, the democracy of Europe will see us through. Democracies are vibrant, they're better places to be, they're where ideas flourish. From ideas comes the entrepreneurs we see around us, etc., etc. All that will continue. Uh, it will continue in the atmosphere of which I have described, which I agree is negative at a political and social level, but Europe, um, you can't write it off. Uh, we are now playing on the global, you know, we are no longer, we used to be the gorilla. And for 500 years, that model has served us extremely well. We are now playing on a more level playing field with the other gorillas around. 
Um, I believe that even with Brexit, we will forge a new relationship with the European Union. I think the European Union will survive, not in its current form. I think ever closer union is dead. But there will be an inner core, a, a multi-speed EU with all sorts of people doing all sorts of different things. Uh, I mean, for me, it boils down to that old, uh, in, in English, the phrase is, we're all going to hell in a handcart. I mean, I suspect every culture and language has this phrase, oh, we're all going to hell in a handcart. And I've always thought to myself, well, when are we going to get there? Because, you know, Chaucer, one of our writers from the 12th century, almost certainly wrote, we're all going to hell in a handcart. Every generation, especially once they get to a certain age, oh, we're all going to hell in a handcart. We've never got there, and I don't think that's where we're going. So that's a reason to be cheerful. Tony, what cheers you up? Lots to be cheerful about. I know I sounded pessimistic, but I'm actually not. I've lived in Europe 29 years. There are, I don't think there's another place in the world where it's so good to uh, set up, a, you know, to live and to bring up a family, basically. I've just finished reading, by the way, a great book by Hans Rosling, a Swede, yep. who unfortunately passed away. I recommend it. It's called Factfulness. There's so many things that we think are going badly. Yeah where in fact things are going much better, and he, just, he has 10 different examples, right? Europe actually doesn't get enough credit for the things it has gotten right. There's a long, long list. Again, I was a witness to a lot of this. It's a, grou it's a 500 million you know, grouping uh, of nations that share values and rules and actually can exert its influence in the world in many ways that have an influence on us, both in economics and in politics. And I was trying to suggest earlier is actually exporting its rules successfully around the world in very many important ways. So yes, despite the gloom and doom, great place to live, great place to bring up a family, and it is still influential, uh, but will we face difficult times. Thank you. I think maybe if I could, could say that the opportunities available for young people. Um, I mean, today, you have access to capital, all you need is an idea, and you can execute the idea you have. You can set up a business in a matter of days. You can be funded in a matter of weeks, and you can distribute your product to 300 million people in a matter of months. So I think that you know, the, the game really has changed. I think maybe it's not the same for, let's say, some of the, the countries in Europe yet, but I, you, know, you, you sort of city by city, country by country, you can see that, that, that you know, these opportunities are becoming available for quite a number of countries in Europe. Thank you. And with these positive notes, uh, I would like to open us up to questions from the audience, and obviously starting from the back row. Thank you. <laughs> uh, can we have a microphone there? Hi, um, I don't know if I need a microphone. I fully agree with your earlier comments that the far right have been remarkably successful in utilizing the emotive angle to gain support. However, having promised simple answers to difficult questions and having won the presidency in the US and the Brexit argument, and now having been unable to deliver their manifesto, I'd love to know your views on whether or not that has diluted or somehow destabilized the far-right support. 
So, Tim, why you see that on You'll see in the rise of the vote for Vox, for AFD, for Sweden Democrats. I wouldn't call Brexiteers far right. No way. I think that's. I don't think that uh, half of this country are far right. I really don't. It's a different argument. We, perhaps we can have an argument about it afterwards. No, they haven't peaked. Um, they haven't been in full power. I mean, Italy is the only place they are probably a major part of a government. Well, unless, yeah, Hungary and Poland, but um, their vote's not going down either. It's not going down anywhere in Europe. They haven't peaked. Now, if they come to power within democracies and don't change the rules the way we saw them change in the 1930s when they came to power, and I think they may well come to power in some countries, but if the democratic systems hold and their, what I regard as charlatan arguments, do not improve people's lives, they'll be thrown out with the rest of the rascals. But not yet, it's not diluted at all. Something like that. Do you have a view? Yeah, I agree. Look, in the United States, you look at Trump's popularity, and it's holding pretty stable. Mm. It's still at around 42, 43%. And his genius is that he knows who his audience is. He doesn't care about people who are not part of his audience. He's speaking to his audience, right? And so far, his audience, which is, well, Republicans, but to be more specific, rural, uh, lesser educated, sorry to say, but rural, lesser educated uh, males, mostly, not just males, but that's the demographic, they're holding to him. And it's become tribal politics, right? That's the word, tribal politics. They say, yeah, we don't like what he tweets. Yeah, we don't like his attacks on whatever it is, you know, maybe women or minorities or, but he's one of us. And as long as he does what we believe in, like deregulation, cutting yeah. taxes, it's okay, more or less. A quick, 33% um, of the Hispanic vote went for Trump. Would you call them right-wing racists? 8% of the well, black American vote went for Trump. Were those 8% of black Americans right-wing racists? And it's very easy to be influenced. Would be, I, I think it would be very difficult for any of us to argue that the powerhouse doesn't lie in the far right. Those on the spectrum that have been enticed towards the policies, the question is whether or not they will be disillusioned by the inertia yeah, of power. Eventually, I think I think I think one one meta point yeah. meta point there is also that uh, that would presume that that audience knows that they are failing. <laughs> like one one thing that has very quickly happened in in all all kinds of places in U.S. and Europe is is the polarization of media as well. So if you support candidate X, then you also read only that paper that supports that candidate X, which means that you will probably live in a, on both sides, you will live in a bubble where the other party is bad anyway, right? Well, this is what's really interesting, because when is the shoe gonna drop? When is the disillusion gonna set in? Well, not yet, not yet. Maybe, and I'm hoping, because I'm supporting Biden, right? I'm hoping it's gonna be before 2020, November, but so far it hasn't set in. People are voting for policies, mm. many of them, that will make them worse off. Right? That, I, I promise this, I don't <laughs> right? want to dominate this. That is such an important point. Again, in, educated liberals cannot seem to understand that not everybody votes with their wallet. 
that the Brexit, that, 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 that some people feel there are more important things than their, that's their identity. And, and London liberals just can't get hold of that because they, they're London liberals. For many people, their identity is more important than the economy. And people just can't, can't, they can't get their heads around it because they don't live in that, that world. No, I, I, I don't have much to okay. add to this. Any other questions? Back row, at work. Just a little bit surprised that um, you didn't mention some of the other sort of great power in Europe, uh, Russia. Uh, obviously, you know, there's the um, withdrawal from the intermediate range nuclear missile treaty that's mm. going on. Um, Putin is very clearly sort of trying to maintain his cabal. Uh, and that, of course, in your part of the world, actually sort of um, has quite strong implications as the, um, as the bear sort of continues Catherine the Great's policies. Thank you. It's a little gorilla, let's say. Fading power. It's got 10, 15 years at the most. Uh, which makes it dangerous because it knows it's a weak fading power. That makes it dangerous. If we can just get through the next few years, it will become militarily almost irrelevant and will be of no danger to our Estonian friends uh, anymore. So uh, let's just get over the next 10 or 15 years. It's, it, it, but while it is weak and knows it's weak, Russia is, uh, is dangerous. But it adds nothing to uh, anything. The flashpoint, I don't think, will be the Baltics. It's too smart. Even with hybrid little green men scenarios, you know, you don't have to invade Estonia and trigger Article 5 of uh, NATO's charter, which an attack on one is an attack on all. You don't have to do that. But even with the little green men scenario, it's still too dangerous. The flashpoint is the Sea of Azov uh, between Ukraine and Russia which Russia and Ukraine used to share, and now Russia says it's our sea, and NATO is contemplating defending it. That, that's the flashpoint. Nuclear war, no. So it, it, it is, you're right, it's an issue. Um, it's a secondary tier issue. Ragnar, do you read news about Russia? Do you follow it? I, I do, yes. Why? Being from Estonia originally, I think that has obviously a great uh, impact on my parents' life and my friends' life, etc. And I, I mean, I think you know, R Russia is in is in a very, very enviable position right now because they they they, need, they don't need to do anything actually. Sort of things in Europe, um, in the U.S., etc., seem to work in in their favor in a way, right? Because they, you know. Politically, to have a weakened EU is is in, in, into their advantage, and, and it, it you know the, the sort of the far right seems to play into their hands very much in terms of how how things are developing in in, in Estonia, in Austria, um, you know, in, in Italy, in, in France, you know, they they seem to have a great support in, in in a lot of European countries all of a sudden in terms of their policies that they uh, their favour. They, they are seeking to undermine us. They are seeking to hollow us out from within, and they are a threat. But as I said, it's a temporary period. They are a failing, weak state with what if we can ever get ourselves off carbon? Now what are you going to do, Russia? What have they got? What technology? What innovation? 
what, what are they going to do? Their, their, popula their population is 144 million. Reduce. Nigeria's population is bigger than that. And it's reducing a million people a year. Yeah. Yeah. Anthony, when, when you were representing US to you, did you ever talk to the Russia desk? Was that the thing? Like oh, yeah. Uh, look, I refused to meet my counterpart from uh, Russian Federation, but for one simple reason, it was a waste of time. Uh, because I knew what he was going to say, and I thought it was just a waste of time. Um, and, uh, but no, I don't quite agree with Obama said that Russia is just a regional power basically relevant, regional power. Look, what they've done in Syria, their policy succeeded. They're actually setting the agenda in Syria and arguably more broadly in the Middle East. So it's not just a regional power. But I do agree entirely, and I witness this again firsthand, Russia has committed a series of own goals that are spectacular own goals. Think of it. People just think about how they succeeded in, in the annexation of Crimea, but own goals because they made Europe think more seriously about NATO, about defense spending, about solidarity, about an energy union. Sounds technical, but hugely significant. Because now you don't have pockets of energy, you know, islands where gas doesn't flow freely. Now gas is basically flowing freely around the EU. And Russia has less leverage, even in the weird part of the world, right? In Lithuania, it has a, now this major offshore floating uh, you know, LNG facility, which has reduced Russia's influence in the EU. All of this is due to the fact that Putin was so aggressive in the Baltics, in Crimea, and so forth. So, a series of spectacular own goals, and of course, setting, behind, setting back the Russian economy pretty significantly. So, uh, I agree. I don't think Russia long-term is a major threat, but certainly short to the medium term, obviously, is a spoiler. Russia is significant because all it can do is be a spoiler. It can't actually create much, but it can cr make life difficult for us. That sounds like your average internal po populist. <laughs> Thank you, that was an excellent question to open up a completely new topic. Uh, there is another question there. Thank you. Hello. Um, so, I'm a London liberal, and I'm also a capitalist, and I'm trying to make money in the city. What do I do? We're talking about borders going up. We're talking about growth in technology and digital growth. What, does, what happens to the populace? The people who are revolting against what we're doing, what do I do as an individual? Buy Bitcoin. I mean... <laughs> uh, you seek to understand them which is what hardly any of the Liberals do. They have no interest in understanding who the people are, why they feel the way they feel. I knew Brexit was coming. I, I predicted it months out. I said, I'll be astonished if we don't vote out, because everybody I knew was going to vote to leave. And the other thing, and I'm not accusing you of this, the other thing that Remainers, of which I am one, can do is to stop looking down their noses and sneering at Brexiteers, because you're just making it worse. As a, as a practical example of that, one, one thing that we did in Estonia, uh, there is a startup leaders club, which has about 70 founders in the country, like several running billion dollar companies, hundreds of millions of dollar companies. Before the elections, what we did was that we realized that we don't have a clue how in our progressive digital society that populist movement can even sort of pick any ground. So we hired anthropologists and sent them out to interview 
40 potential right-wing voters. And they came back and they presented to us, uh, like, okay, here are these eight personas, this is how the, these personas think. Only one of them is angry, only one of them believes in flat earth, and, and actually there is this single mother whose, I don't know, boyfriend left to Finland for a job, and these are the issues that they're facing. And that is pawning like a sequence of things the same founders are now doing in their companies, that, okay, let's do this educational project. Let's do this educational project in tech, but let's not do it in Tallinn, but let's go to rural schools. And so that we start adjusting sort of how I think the progressive tech community is, is sort of interfacing to the rest of the country. And I think, like, maybe as a practical example, how this sort of looking up from your nose, like, like just getting it started somewhere. And, and by Bitcoin as well. Apologies for a joke, but, but I think it, you know, it, it's, yeah, you need to take the technology outside of London, I guess, right? And you, you need to get people involved. So um, I think that's one of the reasons, and I haven't followed the UK politics so closely, but obviously the, one of the reasons is that you have a huge, you know, south, north-south divide in this country, um, and, and, and somehow you need to bring the people and get them to embrace the technology the way you know we do over here. And we have time for one last question back there. I'd like to ask you about privacy or privacy. Um, you've mentioned um, how supportive uh, Zuckerberg and others were of GDPR, what about data. You also mentioned that the liberal elites um, don't understand the importance and value of, um, of identity. Um, one of the things our industry, financial services, is doing is looking at how you um, can enable people to use the power of technology to own your own identity in a digital way. There's lots of fintechs around that are working on this. Um, what, what question is, for all of the panel, what is your perspective on the extent to which uh, our experience of, for example, the 2006 digital, uh, no, 2006 Identity Cards Act, which was a complete failure, is gonna influence the likelihood of our industry being able to get people to take and own their digital identity? here in the UK, around Europe, and globally? I'll, I'll be brief, uh, A, because of the second part of your question I don't know very much about. On the first part about Facebook, the only reason that they care is that finally the media woke up and said, oh my God, these people are publishing hate crime day after day. Google, Facebook, and the rest of them are publishers, and I use the word advisably, they are not platform providers, they are publishers. It's like some big uh, media tycoon is publishing day after day volumes of hate, misogyny, uh, uh, anti-gay propaganda, far-right propaganda, all sorts, a torrent of this filth provided by Zuckerberg to make him money. And he knew all along this was happening. The anti-Semitism, he knew all along. But he's making money out of it. And it's only when it became a media issue that finally they said, oh, well, we're going to employ an extra seven people to check it. Ditto Google. They are disgusting what they have allowed. Absolutely disgusting. And it's only public pressure. There's no other reason. And I think the politicians should go after them and legislate them and censor them because we censor our newspapers and so we should quite right too. So we should go after them and censor them. Digital identity I don't know very much about, sorry. So I think this is really ground zero of some really tough debates. 
The citizens' right to own their identity, their own data, and decide who can get access to the data and under what terms, right? The issue also of monetizing data to ensure that individuals actually capture more of the value inherent in their own data, which is not happening today. And we're seeing various you know, uh, legislation being proposed in the US and also in the EU that would allow individuals to know how that value is being uh, valued by, let's say, platforms. Actually, I'm involved in one of these efforts as it's an app that will allow an individual, you know, you will have access to your Twitter feed and your Facebook activity and will give you a, a knowledge or insight into how that information is valued by others and to make sure that you capture more of that value. This is one of the key issues uh, and Europe again is at ground zero of that, uh, of that legislation. And also data as power without getting into the, 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 the technicalities of this, our antitrust rules are clearly out of date because the way we look at antitrust now is by pricing power, basically. Ability to increase price. But that doesn't capture actually a lot of interesting issues about data and control of data as a source of power. Finally, taxation. Super interesting issue in the digital economy. Our taxation rules are out of date because they're based on permanent establishment rather than actually looking at um, where you are you know, generating value from data. So on all of these areas, on privacy, on taxation, on, on competition law, that's ground zero. Individual's actual right to monetize his identity. But I, I think your question was more specifically about that, whether, whether we were likely to have identity cards in the UK or did I, did I mishear that? I mean, yeah, I think, I think there I would expect same things to happen as, as happened with, the, with your banking data. So I think you'll have the, you know, BSD2 coming in, open banking data. Everybody can access, at, given you've given the consent, your transactions. Potentially this may happen also then, then in, in, let's say, in an advertising space, because what these big companies are doing, they're selling this data for advertising. So. Uh, potentially, if there is a requirement, at, given that you give the consent to, you know, give that to others, I think that will will change things quite a lot. And I think you, there should be probably the ability to sort of to be left alone. So yeah. you have a kill switch, let's say, whereby say, you know, I, I push the switch and nobody knows that I exist. It's it's. I, I think that's the very acute example where this sort of role of nation-state game is on. So most of the people in the Western world have a Gmail email address, which means that they have a Google identity. And that's kind of trusted as a default that, hey, of course, Google has some of my data. But at the same time, like in Estonia, for example, we only trust the government, really. Like that's, we see that as a role of the nation-state that, okay, these guys actually hold our private keys. Or, or, or so every Estonian has a unique ID and we vote online and we've had digital signatures from 2001 and all of that. And then it becomes a question of how do you interoperate with other identities? 
And there, this sort of balkanization of EU has been very visible because... That's fascinating. In Spain, one of the reasons they would like the EU is they don't trust their own government, but they trust the EU. In Britain, to an extent, we trust the government, we, don't, we less trust the EU. It's a fascinating cultural it's, difference it, about um, trusting government, but also in information. And exactly, and that's... Uh, that, uh, that, uh, sort of this interop, and that means that Estonia now exchanges identities with Finns because we kind of agree on the values. Which brings me to what I intended to say as the closure of this panel, which for me the biggest takeaway here is that Europe has a future. Europe will survive many ugly things in the years to come. And one of the things that will carry us through this is this exporting values and exporting the, the standards and sort of being the standard setter for the world in many of those complex challenges ahead, which which for me sounds like a very optimistic thing because like in this all this technological progress and what we see happening in the world, one thing that I commonly see the public to misread or not notice is that technology inherently doesn't have morale and values. It's only the use of technology that sort of where morale and values get applied. And if that application, the way you apply the technology that Chinese, US and and, and probably many African nations and probably many other places in Asia uh, will all have some machine learning technologies, but the way Europe applies them will be different and winning in some way, that's how we win. Kuulasite salvestust Londonis LHV finanstehnoloogia ettevõtetest klientide vastuvõtul toimunud paneeldiskussioonilt. Teemal, milline on Euroopa roll geopoliitilisel maastikul, Arutlesid tuntud kirjanik ja endine Sky Newsi väliskorrespondent Tim Marshall, suursaadik Anthony Gardner, kes esindas USA-ad Euroopa Liidu juures siis, kui ühendriikide president oli veel Barack Obama, ning Ragnar Meitern, Eestist pärit investeerimispankur, kes kuulub ING Panga juhtkonda Londonis. Arutlust juhtis Sten Tamgivi. Aitäh kuulamast, kohtume jälle!